talking about porn can be tricky. That's why we created an interactive conversation guide called Let's Talk About Porn. Simply select who you'd like to talk to, your partner, child, friends, parents, or even a stranger, and select the type of conversation you'd like to have. We'll walk you through a healthy way to approach this taboo topic in a productive conversation. Let's Talk About Porn is available for free, both in English and Spanish, so you can be prepared to talk when someone asks why you're listening to a podcast about the harms of porn. Access the guide and start talking at ftnd.org forward slash blueprint. That's ftnd.org forward slash blueprint. My name is Garrett Johnson, and you're listening to Consider Before Consuming, a podcast by Fight the New Drug. And in case you're new here, Fight the New Drug is a non-religious and non-legislative organization that exists to provide individuals the opportunity to make an informed decision regarding pornography by raising awareness on its harmful effects using only science, facts, and personal accounts. We want these conversations to be educational, uplifting, and hopeful as we sit down with experts, influencers, activists, and people with personal accounts We cover a wide variety of topics that may be triggering to some. This discussion includes explicit discussions of sex acts, child sexual abuse, sex trafficking, eating disorders, suicide ideation, and drug use. Listener discretion is advised. Today's episode is with Deanna Lynn. Deanna experienced childhood neglect and child sexual abuse. Many of her experiences in her early childhood normalized pornography. Because of her upbringing, From an early age, she knew that she wanted to be in porn. During this conversation, we talk about how she ended up in the porn industry, how she transitioned out, and what she's up to today. With that being said, let's jump into the conversation. We hope you enjoy this episode of Consider Before Consuming. Well, I want to say thanks for being with us today, first of all. Yeah, thanks for having me. And second of all, I want to apologize for being late. Yeah, I actually had that happen. Um, and I'm very, very, very schedule oriented. Um, but I was volunteering somewhere and it was a Thursday. And at the end of the day, I realized it was Thursday and I just didn't show up. And I was <laughs> like, how does that even happen? <laughs> okay, that makes me feel better. Well, I think it'd be important for our audience to get to know kind of who you are before we go into... Uh, why we're speaking with you. Sure. Uh, Nowadays, I am actually a mother of twin girls. They are 16 months old. Wow. And so we spend most of our time just watching everything that they do because they are fascinating. (laughs) Um, So that's that's pretty much what we spend spend our time doing. I do get to... um, manage a global nonprofit from home, uh, something kind of unrelated to some of the areas that I minister to. And that's fun. Uh, it gives me an outlet to serve people who are doing other types of work in different countries. Wow. Well, that's awesome. And knowing that you have twins that are 16 months old makes me even more grateful that you're with us today because <laughs> it can be challenging to get away as a, you know, yes. as a mom. So what's the most challenging part about having twins? Uh, I, I have to say in the beginning, the most challenging part was, um, feeding one and hearing the other cry. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, so like when my husband works at night, um, and it's my turn to do like bath time on my own, it's really hard, um, because like one will be screaming for my attention while I'm tending to the other. But now that they're getting older, they're kind of like, they, they know I'm coming back. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. It can be a full-time job just to manage, just like to care for one. And so I can't imagine caring for two at the same time. Yes. That's a wild adventure. It's a lot of work. Well, good for you. One of the questions that I like to ask people is something that makes them happy and then something that they're proud of. And one of the reasons why I like asking those questions, what makes you happy and one thing that you're proud of is because it kind of gives you an opportunity to brag a little bit, (laughs) you know, when most people aren't really comfortable with bragging. So Mm -hmm. we want to put you on the spot, Deanna, and ask, you know, what makes you happy and what are, what's something that you're proud of? Well, besides my twins, who I call my little joy bubbles, um, (laughs) Christmas movies, Christmas music, anything, um, Christmassy that, that makes me happy. Uh, and anything to do with interacting with animals. 
Well, what about something that you're proud of? Um, I'd say, honestly, one thing that I'm proud of is finishing my master's degree. Um, you know, I had... I had only really been around women for three years before going into school and I any schooling I had done before was online and so taking like my new healing and interacting with people and learning this whole like social dynamic of living on campus and and doing the grad school life um it was a lot emotionally, but also uh, intellectually, like being around such academic people. And I was there just having fun learning. Right. Um, and it was very intimidating. But I, I finished to the end despite so many things that tried to come against me. Wow. Yeah, that's an impressive feat. And you've accomplished it. Good job. Are you <laughs> still studying or are you done with school? Uh, I'm definitely still studying. I'm actually, to go into a doctorate program that I want to go into, I need... Um, 72 master's level hours, and I only have uh, 69, so I need one more course, and then I can apply for research. Wow. And then at that point, we'll have to refer to you to, as Dr. Lynn, I guess. How fun is that? <laughs> it's going to be cool. Well, we always feel fortunate to record conversations for our podcast, Consider Before Consuming, um, but we especially feel grateful when we have the opportunity to speak with someone who is a former performer or a survivor. Um, so we just want to say thanks for for being here. But not only being here today, the reason why we're able to have this conversation with you today is because you have showed up and put in the work, you know, day in and day out for, for years now. Yes. Well, we talked about kind of what you're up to now. Um, we want to jump back to why we're speaking with you. And going all the way back to when you were a child, you know, it's, it's not uncommon for people who have been involved in the porn industry to, you know, express that certain things in their childhood almost like groomed them in a, in a sense for the porn industry. Was there anything in your childhood that you can identify that quote unquote groomed you for the porn industry? Sure. Uh, you know, I actually didn't even realize that it had happened until I was like probably five or six years in the porn industry and I was doing EMDR sessions and I was going back to some of those places and I was like, oh my gosh, this is all connected. Oh, like, no okay. wonder I, I chose this path. But um, yeah, for, when I was when for, I was five. For oh, our sorry. listeners, sorry to interrupt you, but for our listeners, I don't know if everyone listening will understand, uh, you know, be familiar with what EMDR is. Oh, and sure. how you kind of jumped back to those things in your early childhood. Can you talk to that a little bit before we go into those experiences that did groom you? Absolutely. Uh, so while I was in the industry, I started having flashbacks of different things that were happening in my life. And the thing about unprocessed memories um, is that you, uh, or trauma in general, is that we continue to relive these experiences. Um, and so I needed some sort of tool that would help me to process the memories so that they could get filed away so that my whole being didn't feel them all the time. And so basically it was like a um, where I would just like either watch fingers or I'd use uh, little tools in my hands that allowed my brain to go from left brain to right brain while I processed the memory. Um, and it just helped lessen the extreme uh, feelings that came up when I would have flashbacks. Right. It's almost the, one of the purposes of EMDR, if I'm not mistaken, is kind of taking memories that are um, in like the, the hidden memories that we have and taking them to the forefront of our mind. And then as you reprocess those, they become, like you said, you know, not as traumatizing. Is that kind of a... Yes, they, they become filed away. Because the thing is, is our body still remembers things, even if our brain did this magnificent job of, you know, our brains do amazing things to just cope and survive. Uh, but our body still carries a lot of that. And so sometimes we need to get them on the same page. Right. Okay. Well, thanks for explaining that. That's interesting that you were doing that while you were in the porn yeah. industry. <laughs> yeah. So, I had no idea that maybe the industry was causing some of it, but right. yeah. Huh. That's interesting. Well, jumping back to some of those memories that you um, were able to deal with during your EMDR sessions, can you talk to some of those? Sure. 
so I was about five years old and uh, living on a military base when my mom had called me in a room and she had um, she was playing porn on the TV and uh, she found it really funny to, to watch me um, react and get scared and stuff like that. And so she would set me up with things like this um, either on the TV or she'd get my dad ready who I called my dad who was um, he had adopted us. Uh, he like she would get him ready like they were about to come together and um, and she would have me like walk in and, and get scared and then she'd like turn me around and, and do it again um, and tell me, you know, between the movies and watching them, she would say, uh, this is normal. This is how we were made. Like she was like helping me to get comfortable with like sexuality. But the thing is, is like no one actually talked to me about healthy sexuality. I just saw these things and um, these things acted out and and I would continue to see them in my dreams as, as a child, uh, pretty much for the rest of my life up until about a few years ago. Wow. Do you currently have contact with your mom in the sense of, are you guys still in contact? Oh. Do you have a relationship today? No. So she actually ended up dying of a heart attack uh, before I turned 11 years old. And so most of what I remember about womanhood was taught to me before I was 11 um, through some of these these things. Oh, wow. My mom, her mother passed away when she was around 12 years old. Mm. And it's, you know, it's been a lifetime challenge for her to, to not have her mom in her life. Yes. Has that been the case for you? Oh, yes. Um, I mean, it's so hard, like, you know, even becoming a mom, um, not knowing like, like, if she did become healthy, could she have been an ally in my life? Um, and just, you know, like every single life experience, like what would it be like to have gone to my mom uh, before my honeymoon and, and had like some talks with her or, right. you know, even though like we got off to a really bad start and she was in a very unhealthy place, I do believe she could have gotten better, you know, and I believe that she was trying um, with what she had. Right. Interesting. So do you think that experiencing the death of your mom at a young age do you think that that was also one of the things that possibly, you know, I, I used the word groomed, and I don't mm -hmm. know if that word's appropriate for this situation, but do you think that that, I don't almost like forced neglect because you didn't have your mom? Do you think that that added to you and like pushed you in the direction of pornography or no? I would say um, what it did is it, it didn't stop me from going in that direction, right? So the lack of guidance, the lack of having someone guide me into um, adolescence and all of those things. And so right. I, without that guidance, I could only look to the world and what the world was telling me I was and what they wanted from me. And so it was like, it seemed like an easy choice from there. Yeah. When you say that the world was telling you this mm -hmm. and leading you in this direction what messages were you getting from the world and how did how were you getting those messages well so one uh pornography continued to be a part of my household like like the movies were constantly in the house um you know, even though like CPS had come and removed him when my mom was alive a few times, like they, like we still knew where the stash was. And so that, that right there was telling me like, this is an acceptable part of culture. Plus I grew up in a time, you know, I was born in the eighties. And so I feel like that might've been like a real big boom for the industry because I remember, um, like triple X rated movie theaters and stuff like that around, um, my sister was dancing in a club. She was four years older than me. I'm sorry, stripping. I like to call things what they actually are. She was stripping in a club. Yeah. And, um, and so I, you know, I kind of looked to her as like an idea of womanhood and um, the people in our high school and junior high, like they would call me names. And I was just like, man, this must be like the only thing I'm good for. Um, and without that lack of guidance, it was like I felt like I was pushed into uh, becoming sexualized. And that seemed to be the only way uh, I could get people's attention. And so I, I went to some extreme measures just for somebody to notice me. Right. And that makes sense. I, I think that, yeah, we as individuals need certain things. 
and love and acceptance and, you know, genuineness, all those things we need. And if you're not getting that in healthy ways, then sometimes, you know, we can seek it in ways that are harmful. Right. Um, at what point did you begin to contemplate porn as a possible career? Uh, so th- this is the interesting part about my story is, is most people will like say things like no child wants to grow up and be in pornography or be a prostitute. Uh, I was f- in first grade. I was in first grade walking to school. I remember exactly um, where I was walking when I thought like when I grow up, I want to be a porn star. That was after I had moved off the base. Um, and so I probably had exposure maybe a couple times by then. Um, but I just thought that's what being a woman was. And I, that's what I was going to do. But I also wanted to be a lawyer. Like I, I knew I had, um, you know, my mom was really good about uh, training us up to be women who could take care of ourselves, who were competent. She was like a, a, a statewide celebrated insurance agent. Um, so we had that going for us too. So I was very driven um, and wanted a career, but I also was very sexualized at an early age as well. Wow. And for me, as a person who has kids, when you say first grade, I know exactly how young that is because, you know, I have kids that are that age. And yeah, it's I can't tough imagine. To, yeah, it's tough to imagine you experiencing that at that age. And then going back to the, the culture question, you know, one of my mom's favorite movies was the movie Pretty Woman. And she would play that over and over um, when she was when she was drinking that and dirty dancing, and um, and it made it like this heroic story. And so by the time I was in second grade and I was like fed up with the abuse, the physical abuse that I was experiencing at home, I ran away and like thought that that was my life, that I was going to have to be a prostitute, someone to uh, love me and take me in. And what, like I'm eight years old by the time I'm in second grade and I'm literally trying to model my life after what I saw in Pretty Woman. Wow. So at this age, if I'm understanding correctly, you had this thought of being in porn. Mm Mm-hmm. You also had this thought of being a lawyer. Yeah. Did you think at that age that you would do both or did you think that you would use pornography as a vehicle to to become a lawyer? Did you think that far in advance and in that much detail? <laughs> so, unfortunately, in my thought process, um, I wanted to like run for treasurer of the state. Like I I I <laughs> I just have to <laughs> I wanted laugh to be because, in politics. Wow. Um, I had big, big dreams, um, and I wanted to do everything. And so I just felt like, you know, if that, like, and I didn't go anywhere with this at the time. I can only, like, see it in hindsight. But, like, I remember thinking, like, if if this is, if I'm going to go the route of pornography, like, that's going to be something I do when I'm young. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I'll go into, like, a career after that. Okay. And then I never thought about it again until after I left the industry and was like, how did I end up there? Wow. (laughs) Yeah, you start realizing how fast life goes, right? Yeah. Well, is it safe to say then that you thought that the porn industry would improve your quality of life? Yes. So by the time I actually encountered um, uh, the, uh, I hate to say opportunity, but by the time I was offered a career in pornography, um, yeah, at that point I was, I was addicted to drugs. I was living on the street. I was, um, like sleeping in U-Hauls if I was sleeping. Um, and I was trying to ex- uh, escape jail time. And it was like, when I got offered this chance to make something of myself, you know, a lot of times what they'll do is they'll, they'll take you to these high end bars and they'll introduce you to like really rich people who can, you know, give you this lifestyle and they pick you up in limos and, uh, they put you up in mansions. Like the girls will live in a mansion together and stuff like that. And so, um, yes, that life to look a lot, looked a lot more appealing than me being drugged out on the street. Yeah. It almost seems like they take individuals who are experiencing extreme hardship mm-hmm. and then they put them into a situation where it's almost like they try to recreate a setting, like a 
family setting because they're having you live with other girls. Did you find that comforting to live with other girls in that setting? Uh, yeah, I did. Um, the, the interesting thing about the industry is, you know, like once you get in the industry, you don't really have contact outside of the industry. And, and it's not that we, we can't, they don't force us not to, but like the things that we talk about and we see and the way that we act, is just not socially acceptable. Right. Um, and so that does kind of become your, your place of belonging. Right. When I went under contract with the company that I ended up going under contract with, uh, you know, they became my family. And um, yeah, it was like, uh, the interesting thing about acceptance is that uh, instead of like becoming someone better, um, it's not that like who we all were were bad. It's just like we, we each had some some damage in some areas. But uh, it was there was something really refreshing about just everybody knowing everything about you and you just were. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That yeah. Makes sense. It's almost like you were experiencing the, the benefit of genuineness, even though you weren't in like in a state of ideal authenticity. Right. That's, that's interesting. Well, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. As you went and met with these people at these, bars and you know you, you mentioned you I think you use the term like these wealthy individuals with nice cars do you think that yeah. that was part of the grooming process for you yes so that's actually that, that's a huge tactic that they use um not only for people who maybe are lacking guidance and are maybe living like an impoverished life but also for for teenagers for 18 year olds um producers will they, they introduce you to famous people and they want to get you out of your small town life and small town mentality and all this stuff. And, um, and it's, it's like another addiction almost like just the, the need, the want, the desire to be anywhere, anybody but yourself. Um, and I remember that a producer, a former producer actually wrote about him doing that. Like he would take the girls and you would, uh, he had pictures of, you know, him with famous people all around. And, um, it's, it's almost like a drug dealer. I've got to say, especially with my background in drug addiction, like they give you a taste. Um, and then like after you've experienced it, like, it's like, well, how far will you go to continue this? Right. That makes sense. Some of the language that you're using is making me wonder if you ever experienced uh, trafficking during your time in the porn industry. And as you're aware, the definition of sex trafficking, legally speaking, within the U.S. is a commercial sex act induced by force, fraud, or coercion, or mm -hmm. if, if a person is under the age of 18. And so I'm wondering if you can identify or have identified that you did experience forced fraud, coercion, or, or underage involvement while you were in the industry? Yeah, I do like to help people make those connections. While I don't like to be like identified um, like specifically as such, I do like to tell people there are there are connections, there are similarities. Like when I was officially so I had started at a restaurant that exploited women, right? And they, um, I was entered into a swimsuit competition at 17. The winner won a layout in like a famous nude magazine. And it was like, like they would teach me that there are uh, socially acceptable ways to sell sex. Um, but through working there, I actually uh, started modeling uh, swimsuits and lingerie for a local tanning salon with some of the other girls. And the leader uh, that arranged for this she was like this beautiful uh woman and um and she's the one that introduced me to my agent who ended up being my pimp because he started off with like modeling gigs and then it was like more alcohol was available and then like this guy wants to do a private with you and like offers obscene amounts of money and it's like you're already drunk you're like whatever um and then after a while you get so demoralized that you're just like you know whatever um, you're demoralized, you're dehumanized. Um, so there's that connection there. The other thing that I think people uh, don't recognize is like our need to make make a living, right? So after you've been demoralized and um, 
and dehumanize. It's like, well, like, how do we how do we get a job after this? Right. And everyone will tell you, like, you can't do anything else. And so like the part of the grooming process that like my pimp put me through is that I would have to learn how to tolerate certain things and certain amounts of violence and roughness and all of this stuff um, so that I would even get hired. And if you even looked like you didn't enjoy it, like they're not going to give you another job. And it's like, well, if you think that's your only option, then you better play the part well. So going on from there, um, and I'm at like this life turning point in my career, because sometimes they will change like the the acts on you. Um, I didn't experience too much of that. um, But I know a lot of people did. Um, But for me, like, like I was I went under contract with this company, and they were producing this global award winning series every year, this series. Um, won awards everywhere and and I was supposed to be on the box cover and so they wanted to pair me with somebody that was known for how violent he was and he was in Europe and um, and so I drank the whole day just to, I was so scared of how much this was going to hurt that I, I like they had beer on tap like it literally came out of the sink in Prague um, and by the time we shot the scene, they said they couldn't even use it because I looked like a rape victim. They were like, she looks like she's being raped. And I had to redo the whole thing. Um, and it's like, I wasn't forced to do that, but there was so much pressure to stay with this company and to um, and to keep getting work and all the stuff that I was like, okay, I've got to figure out how to tolerate this or else I'm going to be out of options. It's almost like this balancing act of you need to be high, you need to be inebriated in some way to deal with the pain, but you can't be too high or else right. you appear to not be enjoying it. Right. And you, I, I had that problem a lot, <laughs> finding that balance. Is it safe to say that that fueled drug use? Uh, so my drug use started beforehand and I actually ended up having to get off of drugs, um, to work for the companies that were hiring me. Uh, and like I said, it's, it's a really interesting thing because like they'll, they'll offer you like some really, uh, expensive alcohol. Um, but you can't drink too much because you can't end up like sloppy. Uh, but so trying to figure out like, how am I going to get enough alcohol to get through this where it doesn't change my appearance. Um, And so, yeah, it's very interesting. Thanks for sharing that. I just think it's, it's so valuable to be able to speak with you, a person who has experienced these things. And I think that it helps our audience, whether the person is someone who is a performer currently and wants to get out of the industry or someone who is consuming pornography or all of those possible scenarios, it's, it's beneficial to hear from you. And so, again, I just want to acknowledge that you're awesome. Thank and you. And we appreciate you sharing these uh, details. Going back to that scenario where you were in Europe and you mm-hmm. were trying to, it sounds like you were trying to elevate your career because yeah. you wanted that cover, right? You wanted to be on that cover to almost like secure a career or advance your career in some way. Right. So the first attempt, they, they said that they weren't going to use the footage. Is that correct? Correct. Uh, they, I, I mean, I have no idea where that footage is now. Um, but yeah, we had to, they couldn't use it and we had to shoot, reshoot the scene. And so the interesting thing is um, the producer, the owner of that company ended up, coming into set to be there because the director of that series was known for how much he had put women through. And he literally was like, if I'm not on that set to stop this at a certain point, like she will not come back. And so like in a, in an interesting way, like he protected me, but enough so that I would stay in. Mm -hmm. Right. It's almost like he was protecting you. And at the same time, exploiting you. Yeah. So he could continue to exploit you. Right. That's interesting. 
Well, we talked about how at a young age you were told, whether it was directly or indirectly, that porn could be a good option for you and improve your quality of life. And then moving into your late teens and working for that restaurant that exploited women mm-hmm. and then, you know, getting brought into the porn industry and the way that that happened, it was also advertised that this could be uh, improve your quality of life. And so I'm wondering at what point did that promise get upended? So the really hard thing about my career is that it kept going um, in the direction that everybody was promising, but my mental health and my spiritual state was going the opposite direction. And uh, so for a while, it was like I could hide behind this character, this lifestyle. We could see how far we could take this. But then there was like this other part of me that was like dying, like literally dying inside. And, um, you know, I'd go home at night and and it was like, does anybody like really care? Like I, I get all, you know, like fans come and see me and stuff like that. But um, and they they try to get to know me and. And all of that, but like when it came to like, like I'm not going out on dates, and I don't really have friends outside the industry, and it's like if I'm not selling my body, do I even really have anything anymore? And that was a really scary place to be. Wow. At and the and and the the risk factor kept going up, right? So it's like all of a sudden you're you're participating in conversations. Um, that I didn't know were abnormal. Um, you know, like the producers would say, like, how hot it is. Um, if, you know, in certain countries, uh, you could have sex with somebody that was, you know, this much underage and it was still legal. Um, and I would hear these conversations and I would go to the, um, the trade shows every year and the award shows and uh, people were being prostituted to the buyers just to even have um, them pick up their product and and I just started seeing like it like it's literally fueling like all this trafficking just to even sell porn Um, and I just I started becoming more aware of what I was actually a part of wow it was that was also scary We, as an organization, run a campaign every year, and we call it the Stop the Demand campaign. Mm -hmm. And we talk about how pornography fuels sex trafficking. And I think for a person that isn't familiar with some of these details, I don't think that they understand that, that there is a connection between pornography and sex trafficking. But it Mm -hmm. sounds like like you've mentioned that connection one of those connections today yeah just one of the connections that and uh pornography so my friends you know that have been trafficked by like kidnap um you know like all this like like had absolutely no choice in the matter um they their their traffickers would use pornography to get them trained in what the people were going to expect from them and so like they even use pornography that way yeah Again, like almost like a grooming tool. Yeah. Well, if I, a person who has never been in the porn industry, try to imagine transitioning into the porn industry, I can only compare it to other transitions that I've made in my life, whether it's like getting a job or having children or going back to school after dropping out. And... As I experience any of those transitions, they can be very challenging and very difficult to manage. And as a person, like I said, who hasn't been in pornography, I'm curious, were there some unexpected transitions that were very difficult to mention or to navigate that we haven't mentioned yet? I think one of the hardest things is just being away from from family and friends and uh, and not being able to talk to them about what you're actually experiencing. So I would say like, hey, dad, like I'm, I'm shooting documentaries today. And they all knew what was happening. Um, but they were just like so happy that I was off the street that nobody really talked about it, you know. Right. Um, and so that's probably one of the harder transitions is that like you can't, like you don't go home on Christmas and Thanksgiving and being like, like, guess what I got to do for work this week? 
you know? Yeah. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Well, going back to your first contract, you mentioned that you signed a contract. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just wondering if you can share some of those details with us of how often you were required to pr- pr- perform um, things like that. And then w- at what point did it become overwhelming? Um, so, you know, my experience was that like my contract was a way for, it was like a safety measure for me because if I signed this contract, I wouldn't have to work for just any company with any person and like all this stuff. Um, I had a little bit more say in what I could do. And so it seemed like a better option for me. Um, and also I, you know, with the contract, um, I wouldn't have to work as much. So I, you know, I, I had some benefit to making that next decision, uh, while I was there. I think what got overwhelming to me was, um, I actually ended up ending that contract, um, they had allowed me to work in the office. Part of my contract was like, I want some life skills and some insurance and pay for my testing and medical. And they got, you know, got me counseling and all of this stuff. Um, And so I used it as a way to gain some other life experience, even though it was still inside the industry. And um, so going back and forth from like the office work to Um, now all of a sudden I have to get naked and in the makeup chair, I think one of the hardest things for me was like always being naked and like, when am I going to get to eat? (laughs) Cause I literally watched myself, you know, I was like 105 pounds and I would watch them airbrush every like flaw, like anything. And it's like, if, if I'm taking pictures all day, uh, especially at these trade shows, um, it's like going from from one suite to the next uh, for whatever magazine and stuff, and it was like I couldn't eat. <laughs> that was oh, wow. very overwhelming to me. I was so tired. Like I just wanted to eat um, and not have to worry about what I was going to look like right. after I did. Wow. Did that lead to any type of eating disorders? Oh, yeah. I didn't even realize I had struggled with that until like, you know, I went from the porn industry to the fitness industry. And man, like you're still your own market, like your body is still what sells you. And so I was like down to 500 calories a day and taking supplements and 80% like raw vegan. And um, yeah, it was bad. There was a, a lot I had to undo as far as getting comfortable in my own skin and just being, I mean, I came to Kentucky, like we love to eat out here. (laughs) Everything's casseroles and you bake with your old bacon grease. And yeah, (laughs) I had to learn a few things. Yeah. Well, you mentioned that while you were in the porn industry, you were trying to get other experience, almost like Mm -hmm. to fill your resume in a sense. Yes. Going back to you mentioning that you wanted to be a lawyer at an early Mm -hmm. age. Were you working on any of those things while in the porn industry? Um, No, I actually got captivated um, through holistic health and orthopedic exercise because of all the trauma that my own body had been through by the time I was 23. Like I was living with chronic pain, uh, both mentally and physically. And so uh, the trainer that was training me while I was there, um, she was teaching people with all kinds of um, limited abilities how to move again without uh, becoming addicted to pain medicine and stuff like that. Wow, that's and, cool. Um, I just became captivated with what, like how amazing our bodies actually are from the inside out. And I went into that field. Right. Wow. That's amazing. That's really cool. I got a certificate in holistic nutrition and I really enjoy exercise. So I, yeah, I find that really fascinating. Really cool that you Mm. are into that. Do you still do that today? Uh, Up until about a few months ago, uh, I was still doing that. And I probably will incorporate that again. I actually worked for a campus ministry um, out here. And so it was was just amazing that I got to continue doing that work from a much healthier 
perspective instead yeah. of from like image management, but actually about like holistic care. That's cool. uh, but you know, having the twins, like I had to let something go for a season. Yeah. Well, going back to the the pain that you mentioned, you said you had some chronic pain, and mm-hmm. I do want to state up front before I ask this question that if I ask questions that you don't want to answer, then just say you'd rather not answer. That's totally fine. Sure. But I'm wondering if some of that chronic pain was caused because of pornography. Oh, yes. Uh, Now, I've also been in seven car accidents. So um, I... I definitely have a lot of pain from that. But yeah, I mean, there would be situations where my back would go out. Um, and at the time that I was in the industry, you not only shot the movie, but then you had to take a bunch of photos recreating the movie for the cover before they started capturing it from the film. Oh, yeah. And so, um, yeah, the positions that they that the women would have to go into, um, like my back would go out and they literally wouldn't move me they would just keep going anyways um and it was just like a common thing like you just pushed through yeah well one of the common things around pornography is objectification that you stop seeing a person as a person with thoughts Mm -hmm. feelings and emotions and you know you start to see that individual as an object i'm wondering if that's how you saw yourself how yes. how pornography affected your self image and your self esteem yeah uh that's exactly how i saw myself um i really didn't know how to connect with myself as a person anymore and so uh transitioning out of the industry probably one of my favorite things is that like I don't have to do all these things anymore, right? Like I, I don't have to go tanning. I don't, ha- I don't have to dye my hair. Um, I like all those things to keep up this image that everybody else wanted you to be. Like I get to just be today. Yeah. Um, and I really love that freedom, but yeah, that's, that's a really scary place to be for a lot of people that I know that were on the brink of getting out. Uh, one of the things that we'll say is like, if I don't get out now, I'm going to become this forever. And like, um, whatever our real name was, like my name's Deanna, like Deanna is going to be gone or, and I would hear that from other girls. Like you just get so far in that, like that is what, who you become. And yeah, Yeah, it's almost like because our brains are always changing and we're always evolving as people, mm-hmm. it, we can, like, even going getting really sciencey, like talking about neuroplasticity, mm-hmm. like, you can become a different person and that is your new authentic self, yeah. even though it's not like your ideal authenticity. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, and that's that's a really hard part of the healing process. Um, and actually, I wrote a book uh, on the whole integration process afterwards of figuring out like who I am as all of me. Because like first, I was like known for being in pornography. Then I was known for not being in pornography anymore. Oh, interesting. And it was like, okay, well, what about all these other aspects of my life? How do I continue to move forward and not deny? that part of my life because that like that can be troublesome too if we're just like mm-hmm. you know what forget it that was her that wasn't me it's like no that actually was you yeah so let's try to figure out how to move forward as a whole person wow that's a beautiful thing yeah i like that one of the phrases that you used just barely is the term or the phrase just be you mm-hmm. you know, you've said that you didn't have to go tanning and dye your hair you've just been able to just be yeah and that's a beautiful thing Yes. And that's, I hope that all of our listeners can get to the point where they get to experience that and just be, you know, there's a, there's a level of genuineness and acceptance there Mm -hmm. that is very rewarding to feel. Going back to my question about how you kind of, you began to see yourself as an object. Mm -hmm. I don't hear that very often on the performer side oftentimes we talk about i guess i shouldn't say i don't hear it very often i guess i i should say we don't talk about that a lot that the performer sees themselves as an object mm-hmm. oftentimes we talk about how the viewer the person on the other <laughs> side of the screen is objectifying the performer 
Yes. But we don't hear about the performer objectifying themselves. Yeah, which is so frustrating. Um, well, just on the being objectified from the other side, because I continue to, to see stuff like just random comments on TV shows, uh, even in classrooms. On uh, I took a class on human sexuality and stuff, and they just continue to say things like, well, they're not real. Like, it's not real. And, and there's a difference between it's not real and they're not real. Because, like, what you're seeing, like, no, that's not real romance. That, yeah. That's not. Um, it, it's flat-out violence most of the time. Um, but... But we are like we are actual people. Um, could I have connected with that then? No, it was like honestly, we were all just props, and we literally use that term sometimes. Wow. Props. Well, we sometimes use a term that is people are not products, and that uh, that aligns with what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. We also sometimes, or in the past, have used a term or a phrase that says people over pixels. And I don't know if I like that term anymore. Hmm. And the reason why is because you, the performer, are not pixels. Right. right. It almost like objectifies right. the performer again because we're referring to that individual as a pixel when there really is a real person on the other side of the screen. Yeah, and, and like we understand the language, right? Like we understand the, the connection that's trying to be made. Right. Um, but yeah, the more disconnected we become, it's like, well, yeah, no wonder it seems acceptable. Yeah. What would you say to to a consumer who feels okay watching pornography because the performers, quote unquote, choose to be there? Yeah, I, I guess the, the hard part that I have with that statement is, um, you know, I'm, I'm 37 years old. I have a husband and two children. I've been removed from the industry for about, uh, yeah, 10 years. And people are still watching all of my work. And it's like, I don't choose that anymore. I chose that when I was 18 and uh, addicted to drugs and alcohol and traumatized and scared and hopeless. And I don't choose that anymore, but I don't get a choice. And so if, if I don't choose that and a lot of my friends don't choose that anymore and everyone else is still choosing that based on that concept, it's like, well, like a lot of us, like we, we don't we don't choose for you to purchase our bodies anymore. Right. Yeah, it's almost like that. It's well, a consequence. It's not a choice. It's a consequence now. Yeah. And it could be argued that your consent, the consent that you gave back then, wasn't true, authentic, enthusiastic consent because right. of the lack of options and where you were at at that time. Right. And then that consent that you gave, even though it wasn't true consent enthusiastic mm -hmm. consent it's it has no expiration date right. like it's it's an interesting thing about the porn industry yeah like my husband and i were talking about that we we're like that doesn't even happen in marriage like in marriage like that we're not like there's no expiration date like i demand you to do this and demand you to do that like like right. we enthusiastically get to choose when where and how yeah. to come together and in marriage, if we have that kind of consent, and then, like, like, how unrealistic is that? Yeah, that's interesting. Well, we've talked a lot about your experience. Now we've talked a little bit more about the consumer on the other side of the screen. Mm -hmm. And going back to one of the comments you made during this conversation, you said that sometimes consumers would come and visit you? Yes. And I'm wondering if that's a common thing for performers to have people uh, seek them out and, yes. and come, come and try to find them. That's happened before and after the industry, um, before and after leaving. Yeah. Um, it is a really an unfortunate thing. I used to be very flattered by it. Now it freaks me out. But, um, I mean, I had one 
fan who had um, connected with me online. And um, one day he just took his family's savings account, wiped it out, drove across the country um, to the company that I was working for. Uh, he stopped by my home state of Arizona, got me my favorite cookies, um, and, and just stayed at the office that day. And I thought, well, he came all the way out here. I may as well sign his DVD collection and all of this stuff. And he, you know, they had, uh, he had sent gifts like all throughout the years and stuff. So it was like, you know, like it, it really was a big moment for him. But I guess what he wasn't expecting was that how very real of a person I was. Because what happened is he ended up leaving with almost the savior mentality of like, I've got to get her out of this. Um, like he connected with a part of me. So then he goes home, he's remorseful, he tells his wife everything. Um, she's like, you've got to stop this, uh, you know, stop the fan clubs, like all of this stuff. And, and um, he ended up taking his life. And I was left dealing with a grieving wife and, um, you know, and he had children and they're trying to make sense of things. And so then she had kind of like um, internet followed me for a while to make sure that I was getting out as I had promised and all of this stuff. And it was just a really tragic situation. And when, when my boss came in that day, you know, I was like, I didn't know what to do with this information because for so long I was told that I was helping marriages that I was helping families, I was helping people. And all of a sudden I realized, no, this is this is actually taking people out. Like marriages are being destroyed or not happening in general. People are killing themselves, like this is bad. And he was like, get used to it and get back to work. And that's what he said. Wow. That's a heavy thing. Yeah. Hmm. What, what was your low of lows? You know, um, I don't know why this was my low of lows before anything else was, but as I was trying to um, make a name for myself outside of being in the movies and I was going to these trade shows, um, you know, people would still take my picture even though I wasn't performing anymore. Like, they would still take my picture, try to interview me, stuff like that. And me, I was trying to make a name for myself as a woman in this business and as someone who was not going to sleep her way around, I really wanted to learn to be an ethical businesswoman. Um, well, my low point was being in a suit at these trade shows trying to make sales without selling, you know, actual sex. Um, and one of the producers that had worked with me before um, came from behind and grabbed my hair and pulled me down and uh, said some things in my ear. And I was actually dating someone as well um, who was there. And then after leaving there, someone had grabbed me from behind. And I just realized, like, if I don't get out of this industry altogether, like, I'll never be able to be, like, Deanna and respected and all of this stuff. And um, Oh, wow. Yeah. Was it a common thing to experience sexual assault while in the industry? You know, I don't know, because for so many of us, it was just a normal thing. So I don't know at what point we actually feel assaulted. Uh, but because I was trying to be somebody, I was trying to be myself, and I wasn't in character. Yeah. That was when I realized, like, I'm truly being violated. Um, you know, normally, we put up like, you know, we have bodyguards and we put our hands underneath their hands and, and we control like when and how they can touch us and stuff like that. But, you know, you do that so many years with thousands of people doing that. It's like you, you don't feel violated anymore. But because I wasn't in character, all of a sudden I recognize, oh, my gosh, this has been happening to me for a long time. Wow. Is is that when you decided to leave the industry at that moment when you were yes. assaulted? Yes, okay. uh, because the person I was dating, he actually happened to be a distributor in the industry, and um, he was outraged as well. And it was like um, he he actually ended up becoming like my next addiction. Like, and I I became completely immersed in in a very unhealthy relationship. But we knew that it was going to be bad for both of us if I stayed in. So one of the things that was hard for me is having uh, somebody in my life who was still in the industry. And so he would come home and take out the things that he would see on me. 
Um, and that was, that was really difficult because anytime we would get in a fight, it was like, well, you did this here or, um, you know, anytime I tried to leave the house, like I would wear like a sweatsuit and he, he would tell me that I was trying to get attention and this and that. And I'm trying to figure out like, who am I in this world? Like I'm starting martial arts and I'm going to a grocery store, which was like exhilarating to me. Um, and all these things, but he would tell me that I was still out there whoring myself. And so that was a really confusing messages to get. And so once I broke free from that relationship, um, it was a very hard place for me to be in because everywhere I went, it was like, um, do they are they talking to me because they know her or are do they actually like oh. talking to me? So you're like in your own head about that. Yes. And a lot of times like I would be confirmed. Like people would be like, Hey, just want you to know, like I I am one of your biggest fans and you know, we were all talking about it the other day and I'm like, Oh man. Oh, wow. Um and so I'm like caught between like pride and shame because I'm like, Well, like I'm still kind of famous, so I had I had that to work out of myself, and then um, I had this shame of like, oh my gosh, like everybody still sees me as a sex object. How am I ever going to figure out how to relate to people? Like when I would go out to dinner, I assumed that the husband and wife wanted to take me home afterwards, okay. and I just I had no idea how to interact with people or how to judge other people's motives because I hadn't had people in my life who didn't try to take me home. Wow. What about uh, career-wise? You mentioned that you were you started doing martial arts and mm-hmm. you started enjoying some of those things that you enjoyed, Deanna yes. enjoyed. Um, what about career-wise? Did you start to transition into a new career? Well, that was when I had opened up my own gym and uh, I was starting to network myself in the community and it got really confusing from there because, like I said, some people would bring up my past. Some people would uh, hire okay. me as their trainer because they knew who I was. Uh, um, and, you know, things on the Internet would coincide. So it was like I was hiring social media managers to try to knock out stuff um, that people were getting anytime. Like I advertised my gym and wrote articles. Um, so that was very expensive, time-consuming, um, right. but I just kept going, and eventually I got healthy enough that I surrounded myself with healthy people, and I could kind of weed some of that out, but, you know, with a past as public as mine, um, it's definitely uh, affected other areas of my life, like school and work and stuff like that. Right. How has your self-esteem changed since leaving the industry? Um... I think, like I said before, just being in a place where it's like, if I'm hungry, like I start when I'm hungry, I stop when I'm full. Um, (laughs) You know, I don't have to be a certain size or a certain number. Like, I can't imagine being enslaved to a scale. Um, And the, you know, like I rarely wear makeup, you know. I, I do like to do it sometimes for fun, but it's like I can just go out with my skin on and be comfortable in my own skin and um, all the wisdom that's shining forth in my hair now. Uh, (laughs) I I get to wear it proudly. It goes back Um, to that phrase of just be. Yeah, it really is. Um, And so that's how I just, I'll never forget being able to look in the mirror and just knowing who I was was truly beautiful. And I just never felt that way before. And so... I try to own it um, in my in my highs and my lows. That's awesome. Well, you've mentioned a lot of healthy things throughout this conversation. You mentioned EMDR, some therapy. Mm-hmm. You mentioned exercise. Uh, you mentioned, you know, going after things outside of, you know, career-wise. What are you doing today as self-care? Like, what, what practices uh, are you incorporating into your life? So one of the things is, you know, I have a recovery group that I participate in and that I have been for about 15 years. And it helps me because, you know, I can't perceive things correctly if I am clouded with this obsession to drink or use drugs. And so keeping things simple there and belonging to a community um, 
where, you know, sometimes our best days is, is just not, you know, picking up a drink or drug or whatever you're addicted to. So having um, good accountability there and then also being a support to others who are still working in the industry and are like, you know, they don't really see a way out right now, um, nor does anybody talk about what's actually happening. And I can just say like, yes, I get it. Like, I know what you're going through. That's not unreasonable to feel that way. Um, right. Those are awful side effects. And yes. Well, that must be a cathartic experience for a performer to see you and be like, oh, she does know what it's like. Yes. Wow, yeah. That's it's really helpful because that, that was what was hard about my journey. It's like I had five years sober by the time, you know, I was really trying to seek healing and I had so much trauma still in my life from the industry and, and beforehand that... I didn't even have enough will to live anymore. And I was like, well, where do I go from here? Like, I don't think I really qualify for a psychiatric institution. I, I don't qualify for a drug rehab. Where do I go as a woman who was sold to one person after another to thousands of people? Where do you go for that kind of damage? Right. Um, and luckily, there there was a place. And now, now they have quite a few more homes. That's awesome. Well, what advice do you have for... Uh, a person right now who is in the porn industry and they're wanting to exit the porn industry but are afraid of all of the unknowns yeah Do you have any advice for them um you know I, so many times uh between the fans the producers and other performers i was told um like once you do this you could never get another job and i've got to tell you like i have had so much fun exploring who I am, uh, what I'm gifted in, how I can use those gifts to add to human flourishing and, and give back to the world. And so I just really um, implore people to discover who you are outside of making porn um, and and really get to use, uh, utilize some of those things that, that you're gifted in and discover yourself and your dreams. Like what were the dreams that you had before going into pornography um, or discover some new dreams? It's, it's a lot of fun, and I just encourage you to, to take some of those steps and discover that. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing those, that hopeful side. <laughs> and um, I'm wondering if there's anything that we haven't talked about during this conversation that's on your heart or mind, um, because I want, I want to leave you with the opportunity to have the last word during this conversation. Um, or did we cover it all? We covered a good amount. There, there is something that I think that uh, that's coming to me right now um, that I get hit with a lot is like, who's going to love me after I did all of this? And um, and I'm so grateful to say like like there are there are wonderful people out there. You know, my husband didn't experience any of the things that I experienced, and um, and so. Like to be able to meet him and him not even like he not once could picture me selling myself or using drugs or, you know, passed out in alleys. Um, and so I, I think the hope for me was was getting to a place where like no matter how recognizable my old life was, like I am I as a person am completely unrecognizable today yeah. um, and people will see that. And so there, there are really good people out there, and we do deserve love in, in every form. Um, so that's I hope a, that's hopeful. That's a true statement. And I asked the question, I said, did we cover it all? And I realized after I asked that question how uh, ridiculous of a question that is because <laughs> it wouldn't be impossible to cover it all, all of the topics and all of the things within this uh, industry within yeah. an hour, you know, an, during an hour long conversation. So I just wanted to yeah. acknowledge how ridiculous that, that question was. <laughs> <laughs> no. is, there, is there anything that our listeners uh, and us as an organization can do to support you? Um, you know, I, I did write two books, so we'd, uh, you know, <laughs> I try to give them away for free all the time. My husband's like, Deanna, groceries. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yes, I do have two books on Amazon and one is purchase leaving the sex trade. And it goes into a little bit of what life looked like for me when I, when I made the choice to go into that line of work, uh, my, to, to choose to sell my body. Um, and then the second book was integrated living beyond the sex trade and, and how to have, you know, 
how I got to achieve that that full life that I have today, um, leaving no part of myself behind. And yeah. So I encourage you to pick those up. Yeah, okay. Thank you for sharing those. And the fact that you wanted to give them away, I think it shows your true colors. Um, but now that you have two 16-month-old babies, you can't give those <laughs> <Yes>. away anymore. <laughs> yes. Well, I want to get your book and read it as well and learn more from you. So I'll make sure to pick Thanks. that up. Um, thank you. Well, no, thank you. Uh, again, we want to say thanks because uh, you took time out of your day to make this happen and you've shared experiences that are really valuable and are going to help other people. I hope so. Thanks for the opportunity. Want to bring Fight the New Drug to your school, business, or community event? Lucky for you, we're pros when it comes to live presentations. We provide information and entertainment to inspire your audience to consider how pornography can impact themselves, their loved ones, and the world around them. We'll present the facts in an interactive, age-appropriate, and engaging way so your audience can walk away with more information on the harms of porn. To book a presentation, visit ftnd.org forward slash live. That's ftnd.org forward slash L-I-V-E. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Consider Before Consuming. Consider Before Consuming is brought to you by Fight the New Drug. Fight the New Drug is a non-religious and non-legislative organization that exists to provide individuals the opportunity to make an informed decision regarding pornography by raising awareness on its harmful effects using only science facts and personal accounts. If you want to learn more about today's guest and the conversation we had, you can check out the links included with this episode. Again, big thanks to you for listening to this conversation. As you go about your day, we invite you to increase your self-awareness, look both ways, check your blind spots, and consider before consuming.